Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. I think family is the most important value. When I was growing up, my father, who'd done very well, was always helping out some poor nephew or a cousin or somebody, because that's what you did. You helped out your family. Oh, another value I should mention is self-reliance. That's got a good side and a bad side because I was told by at least one expert that you don't want to ask for help, but you can't do everything by yourself. Networking is just anathema. You would never try to network, which is a disadvantage, of course. That's Nancy Brown Diggs, an author and academic whose writings have covered the cultural gamut. Her newest book, In Search of Appalachia, celebrates her own cultural roots in a region that's often misunderstood and denigrated by many people, including mainstream media. Nancy, like so many of our guests, is an avid traveler who not only has visited every continent, she's lived in France, participated in language immersion and homestay programs in Japan and Mexico, and she's volunteered in Ecuador, Romania, and Haiti, just to name a few. Her long interest in other cultures is reflected by her PhD in East Asian Studies and by the books she has written, which include Breaking the Cycle, How Schools Can Overcome Urban Challenges, Hidden in the Heartland, The New Wave of Immigrants and the Challenge to America, Looking Beyond the Mask, When American Women Marry Japanese Men, and Steel Butterflies, Japanese Women and the American Experience. With the publication of In Search of Appalachia, Nancy writes about a culture that is closer to her own, but one she never dreamt was her own. In rediscovering the roots of her past, she brings a refreshing and respectful portrayal of contemporary life in Appalachia. Here's our conversation with Nancy Brown Diggs. Nancy, thank you so much for joining World Footprints today. Glad to be here. So I want to ask you, Appalachian people are commonly depicted by hillbilly stereotypes of you know, poverty, ignorance, racism, violence. Are the Appalachians you found the same that you went in search of for your book? Oh, not at all. I guess I was a little, I had some thoughts ahead of time because I was, uh, I count Kentucky as my home. I grew up in Louisville. Full disclosure, uh, I am not from the hills and my family was not from the hills. They were from central Kentucky. But, you know, I think that stereotype covers all of those areas. And it wasn't that way at all. And I never saw the movie Deliverance and I don't care to. I found people to be very welcoming and very friendly. And I learned a whole lot about, well, my culture when it came to the values. You know, I thought, oh, I'm not from the hills. But they have very admirable values because People are so much more important than things. And I think of, uh, I paraphrase uh, Martin Luther King Jr. when he said, wouldn't it be, what did he say? Wouldn't it be great if we could judge people by the strength of their character rather than the color of their skin? And I think by the strength of their character rather than the size of their pocketbooks because they're very people oriented and things don't matter. Uh, but the values, you know, every value can have a, have a good and a bad side. So you might be a little oversensitive when everything depends on your human relationships. 
but I did travel. I didn't really expect to travel all that much and discover as much as I did. But there were wonderful places to visit, wonderful state parks. And oh, before I forget it, there's one caveat. If you go to the state parks and the national parks, a lot of them allow hunting. And this is maybe hunting season, but they, oh, I think they always have a safe trail. And I was down in a beautiful state forest in Tennessee called Pickett State Forest, went to the um, ranger, and she told me that they're, the really beautiful trails were safe. And they were outstanding. There's so much of, of what I call a God sculpture in stone, caves and arches and weird stone formations. And it's just so much fun to explore. You can be a kid again. Oh, I love that. Yes. Oh, and another place, Appalachia has suffered so much from exploitation and all of the above. And I um, visited a, a really outstanding uh, outdoor museum. It's a, well, it's several, but this one, is uh, I think it's closed for the season now, but it's the Barthel Coal Camp, and it's a restored company town. It's been in the uh, the family, the Barthel family, for or maybe it's the Coger family now for years and years. Yes, it's the Coger family, and they restored it very authentically in every detail to the color of the paint. They had uh, people from the University of Kentucky check it out, and you learn how very very hard coal mining was. You couldn't stand up straight, for one thing, and it was very dangerous. It was a really hard life. And then the man that was showing me around, Richard Coger, said that his, I think it was his great-grandfather, came from Wales to work at the mines. They really liked Welsh miners. He died, and so Richard's grandfather had to start working at 11 years old because the family would have had to leave their company house. They'd have to leave their home because... And I think that happened if somebody got injured, too. So it was a really tough life. As we think about uh, the Appalachians and the people of that region, what brought the people to that region? We certainly know of coal mining. We know of paper mills. I'm very familiar with that because my grandfather worked for West Vaco and retired from Mm. them, working uh, for the West Virginia Paper Company for many, many years. So mm-hmm. there's always been a lot of industry there that has gone away, obviously, over time. I think the culture is has mostly been influenced by uh, the Scotch-Irish. And I, I know the history now. I, I wrote about the history, so I wasn't <laughs> sure. You know, I never really had investigated that before. But back in uh, 1607, when Jamestown was the first... European establishment in North America. That was when some Irish, rather Scottish, lairds set up a plantation in Northern Ireland, and that's the same as Ulster. And I think the English government wanted to do that because these people were Protestants and at, at the time, and they were trying to combat the, the Catholics in the rest of Ireland. And I think that was the beginning of all this... Uh, Oh, disagreement between uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland. So as time went on, it seems that uh, you just never knew who was going to be in charge in England and thus in Ireland. Sometimes if you were Catholic, you were discriminated against. Sometimes if you were Presbyterian and not Anglican, you were. So it all depended on who the uh, who was reigning at that time. And they were very poor. So when they saw the opportunities to come to America 
it looked like a pretty good thing. There were famines that went on and uh, illness among the sheep later on. So uh, it was a tough time. But in America, the promised land, you could come if you didn't have any money. You could come as an indentured servant, work for usually seven years, and then you would get a little bit of land and you'd have your future in this country. And a lot of people did that. And a lot of people had very harsh conditions and would run away. But some people stuck it out and uh, did quite well. I want to share, you know, as you're talking about them, uh, Scott Irish, on my mother's side of the family, I'm a Cunningham. And on Ian's family, he's a Fitzpatrick. And we actually found when we were in Ireland, we found um, both the Cunningham and Fitzpatrick communities. And uh, well, for me, the Cunningham um, came from Donegal, but there's Scott Irish as well. And so oh. I, I suppose we're of Appalachian descent. Well, maybe. that could be. That could <laughs> be. Well, in, in some instances, we, we truly are because my grandparents were from Southern Virginia. So that's their home region. And so mm-hmm. I'm familiar with the culture and uh, the people. Uh, and as, as we think about some of the famous people that I know of, you've got Dr. Henry Louis Gates, who's from West Virginia. You've got uh, Tony Brown, the famous journalist from West Virginia, and the well-known football player in Randy Moss. And so there are a lot of people of color, Black people, who have strong ties and who were greatly shaped by growing up in that region as were my father and my aunts and uncles and mm-hmm. parents. Oh, I have to say a good word about West Virginia. Do you know they have a, a very low crime rate? They had the lowest crime rate uh, of any state in 1998, and it's still very low. So that's where uh, West Virginia has been unfairly maligned, I think. Mm-hmm. So. How did the Appalachians end up settling in the mountains, though, after they, they came? I mean, how did well, I think that every place else was taken up by the English. And then I think they were encouraged to go there because they were trying to fight off the English in those areas and possibly the Indians. When was that French and Indian War? That was early on, I think. Yeah, it is such a pretty area. And people, what more can I say about it? Have you traveled much in uh, Appalachia? Yeah, we have. Uh, I mean, we spent a lot of time in Virginia, some parts of western North Carolina, western Pennsylvania as as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely portions of Ohio around um, the Huntington part. and yeah. uh, Huntington, all in that valley. So yeah. those are areas we know very well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that whole Cumberland Plateau that goes all the way over to uh, to Ohio, really, is just so beautiful and so unexpected. Oh, I have to tell you about a place I loved called Charit Creek Lodge. I don't know if you read about that in my book, but uh, you have to hike down. It's like 430 feet down. Mm. Piece of cake. Coming back up, well, but it was <laughs> worth it because uh, you get to have feeling for how people lived back then. There is uh, one of the oldest buildings, if not the oldest building, in the National Park System, which is where the dining lodge is. And you stay in log cabins that are heated with uh, wood wood coal or wood uh, fireplaces and uh, lit with lanterns. And uh, there is plumbing, but it's in another building. 
But the amazing thing was how quiet it was at night. And the stars, just unbelievable. Mm. Uh, oh, but getting back to the values, I think family is the most important value. When I was growing up, my father, who'd done very well, was always helping out some poor nephew or a cousin or somebody, because that's what you did. You helped out your family. Oh, another value I should mention is self-reliance. That's got a good side and a bad side, because I was told by at least one expert that you don't want to ask for help, but you can't do everything by yourself. Networking is just anathema. You would never try to network, which is a disadvantage, of course. You've had the opportunity to study cultures all over the world. Yes. What in particular sparked your interest in Appalachia? Yes, you touch on the fact that you're from the area, but beyond that. I didn't really know much about the culture. I don't know why nobody ever talked about it. It was just normal. (laughs) That's the way people were. But I love Japan. And you know, now when this COVID is over, I studied foreign languages, so I felt pretty comfortable going everywhere. But I took my teenage granddaughter to Japan a couple of years ago. She didn't need me. And I my Japanese is fairly good, but she had her telephone and she would just put it on signs. So you don't really need that anymore. I used to do a lot of translating and that really got me more interested too in the various places to go. You didn't have to study uh, study a, a language uh, when you went travel through Appalachia. I mean, all you have to listen very carefully, however, right? That's true. And I sort of let my Kentucky accent come back a little more. They <laughs> laid it on now and then. This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers. Here's more of our conversation with author and academic Nancy Brown Diggs on her newest book, In Search of Appalachia, in which she connects with her roots in the region through stories and antidotes from the people who live there. I'd like to talk about some of the the really interesting people that you met that you've included in your book. Do you have um, a favorite story? Oh, I don't know how much time I have, but I interviewed a a wonderful man, several wonderful people. He was 92, and he talked about growing up in an area that was not really reachable by road. They had dirt roads. You could take your horses there. And the only medical service was a frontier nursing service, and the nurses would come on horseback. Or you could go to their their clinic and be taken care of. And he was uh, in his two brothers were out, two older brothers were chopping wood. And then the younger brother, who was about, I don't know, little, anyway, he wanted to chop wood. So he took the ax. And while this gentleman, Roscoe was his name, was sitting there, his younger brother took the ax and accidentally chopped his finger off. And so they didn't know what to do. The parents weren't home, but the neighbor came, put the boys on a horse and took them up. I think he said it was 20 miles to the nurse's station and they sewed it back on and he said that it was so memorable because they each got a cookie (laughs) that made a big impression on him Uh, roscoe then he ended up delivering the mail when he was 14 on horseback he would go 30 something miles every day he lied about his age but he had many stories about uh, 
doing that and the people that he would talk to on the way. And then there was another gentleman. Oh, I have to remember who that is. He had never been out of the Appalachian area, ended up on Normandy Beach on D-Day on a little boat with the Germans strafing them and shooting at them all night. And he said he didn't sleep for 20 days and nights. And he was just, you know, a kid. So, uh, but uh, they survived. And those are what I, I like to remember are the greatest generation, all that they did. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were willing to step up, which is typical. Yeah. As we think about the greatest generation and other generations, uh, of uh, Appalachians, what are some of the contributions that you can speak to that oh. people might not know of from people from the region? Uh, well, I think they were very, well, let's see, what did I say about that? I know that this independence and self-reliance, which has a good side too, that was one thing, a oh, lack of respect maybe for authority, which after all, you weren't going to respect the kings and the royals and whoever was running things back there. So maybe that was from being isolated, too. Mm. Uh, What about industry? Are there any industrial contributions? Well, right now, you know, coal has been going down, too. But uh, there are a lot of things that they're working on. They want all of these states have programs to enable people to look work with their brains instead of their brawn. And they're all looking for high tech industries. So we could hope that that works out because these people are very hard working. As one person I interviewed, no, I think I read this, he said, if you would get up and never see daylight and work down in the dark in the coal mines all day long, what would you do if you had good working conditions and a better job? So we could hope for the best there. Reflecting on your book, what do you hope that the reader will take away from it? I'll start with a list of the stereotypical epithets that are given to the uh, Mm -hmm. people, like... um, Hillbillies, rednecks, crackers, clodhoppers, bridge runners, stump jumpers, briars. And I ask, how did millions of people who value family, history, loyalty, faith, independence, character, and country, for whom people are more important than things ever become pariahs in their own land, aren't those traits that all Americans aspire to? And I stop thinking about faith. Um, I interviewed um, Ricky Skaggs, you know, the bluegrass singer, wonderful man. And he said that faith is what most characterizes the people of Appalachia. You know, there they say Appalachia. I grew up saying Appalachia, so I suppose either is correct. (laughs) I hope. Yeah, I'm uh, glad you set the record straight about that, because uh, (laughs) somehow I kind of think the people who aren't from there say Appalachia, and that makes you're right. And that way they know we're perhaps not from there. But that isn't always true. Well, I pronounce it the same way you do, Nancy. (laughs) I have to look it up. I've got the dictionary propping things up here now. I don't dare look now. Everything would tumble. Curiously, um, early on you said, you know, when when they came over to this country from different parts of mostly um, Europe, you focused, however, on the Scott-Irish Appalachians versus, you know, some of the, the other original cultures. And you said that it's because the Scott-Irish um, have given us or have provided a foundation for a lot of American culture. What do you mean by that? 
what is his name? Jim Webb is a, a former congressman who's written the book. Maybe you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. And he talks about all the contributions to the government and ways of thinking. So that's the best I can come up with what I just said about the self-reliance and helping each other. That's a big thing, too, in the community and your family, of course. But I found people to be extraordinarily friendly. I went to a, an extreme example. I visited a, a snake handling church. And I thought, well, they're not going to want me there because I'm just going out of curiosity. They were so friendly and hugged me. It was just astounding. So didn't convert me, though. <laughs> now, as uh, you think about the region from a, from a traveler's perspective, uh-huh. it is diverse. Uh, it covers parts that go into the north and to the south and those areas in between. Where would you suggest people go to kind of get a, a good flavor, perhaps uh-huh. a good cross-cultural taste of the region? I really like the Big South Fork National Recreation Area, and that's where this Cherry Creek Lodge is. I like that because of the scenery. Let's see, where else did I go? You know, it goes all the way up to New York State, too, that little western part yeah. in Pennsylvania to get to know the region. I'm not really sure. There are just so many fascinating places. I tell you, there are a lot of surprises. And one was a, in western Pennsylvania, a place called Metacroft. That really has nothing to do with the culture, but um, it's now considered to be the oldest, longest inhabited region or shelter in North America going back 16,000 years. No, 30, 40,000 years. I'll tell you in a moment. We had a friend that um, was on the board. He was involved with the Historical Society in Pittsburgh. And for a long time, they kept it secret because they didn't want people vandalizing it. And they now have a museum. It's closed right now because I really wanted to go there. But there's such a variety of of places to visit. I'm still trying to think what would be the... uh, Oh, I have 16,000, but it could be 18,000 I read too, which is just amazing that there would be people there. Native Americans staying in a rock shelter. In western Pennsylvania, you said? Yes, it's 30 miles west of uh, Pittsburgh. Wow. Just one of those little surprises you run into. Of course, I love Kentucky, too, which is, oh, and the arts and crafts. I should mention Berea, Kentucky. Are you familiar with Berea College? No. It was founded in, you heard of it? It was founded in 1855 by a Presbyterian minister, an abolitionist, and from the very beginning, it welcomed everybody. Uh, it was integrated and it welcomed women. And then in 1907, Kentucky enacted a segregation law. So it was segregated until the 1950s. And the students do not pay tuition, but they all work at something. And they work in this delightful little hotel. And they're very noted for their crafts. There's a gallery right at the uh, uh, university. And uh, very near, and still in Berea, is the Kentucky Artisan Center. And they have beautiful handicrafts and wonderful food. I should mention the food is just like my grandmother used to cook. You know, <laughs> collard greens and catfish and whatever. <laughs> now you're making us hungry. So, <laughs> making, Oh, and the pies. I won't go into the pies. That's oh, good. my goodness. So as, as we close out, um, I, I just want to ask you, quickly, because I know you've done a lot of international traveling as well. Is there a, a country that feels like your home away from home? I call it a soul country, but a country that you really oh. connect with. 
Oh, my. Well, I'm very American, you know. I think we are unique in many ways. But I love Switzerland. And then my husband was in the Army in those those golden days. And we were in France. And that would have been my major in college was French. And we were there for a couple of years. So I feel very much at home in France, except for the traffic. It's gotten so bad. (laughs) Switzerland, Switzerland is, you know, is just glorious. Yes. uh, I love Switzerland. I love Japan, too. And I feel very much at home. I feel a lot more at home in Tokyo and Paris and London than I do in New York City. It's mm-hmm. it's overwhelming. Mm. So, so it, it, I have uh, to ask, what's your favorite place? You have oh, a favorite? Uh, yeah. Well, we, we don't. Well, we have a lot of them for different reasons. Yeah. So, but uh, enjoyed Brazil, South Africa, Never been there. I love Portugal. France, Portugal. Oh, yes, we had planned, to, I was in Portugal years and years ago. We had planned on uh, taking a tour on one of the river cruises in Portugal this year, but it'll still be there. I'm not sure we will, but it will be. Oh, well, we will all be there. And so I want to ask you this this last question as we, um, as we end. If you could choose anyone to sit next to on a long haul flight, maybe Portugal, maybe Japan, past or present who would that be and why i'd love to talk to you folks and find out where you've been and where you're going (laughs) what your favorite place is so oh i loved uh, antarctica too i went with my niece my husband didn't want to go and uh, i went to uh, kenya with my my daughter no tanzania and my husband was afraid it would be too hard on his back and it would have been sort of rough did you find that in south africa that the roads, if you went out on a safari, were pretty rough. Some of them were. I mean, some of them were pretty treacherous, uh, narrow roads as uh, we kind of drove through some of the mountainous areas. So. My daughter, uh, another daughter, worked in um, Kenya for a while and loved it, but she wrote very funny letters home about the roads. So mm. uh, must have been something. <laughs> Oh, well, Nancy, thank you so much for, for joining us today. We really... Oh, my pleasure. For sure. Got to talk about my favorite subject, travel, and my book. Yes, In Search of Appalachia. <laughs> what I really loved about this interview with Nancy is that she busted misconceptions that people may have about Appalachia. And she really indicated how connected we are to Appalachia cultures uh, throughout the country, even within our own families. So true. And it's a vast region, uh, as uh, she mentioned. It stretches from parts of New York through western Pennsylvania and all the way through the south into places like uh, Alabama and uh, beyond. Uh, So... Uh, it covers a lot of the country, and a lot of us do have ties to people there because in, in many ways it's where America kind of started, as uh, she reflected upon in the origins of uh, this country. And a lot of us of all stripes have ties to Scots-Irish people in this country, some of the hardiest, strongest people who uh, came across the ocean well, we to both, help build this country. We both do, in, our, in both of our families, we're in you know, Scott-Irish uh, lineage. What was one of the most surprising stories for you? For me, it was the story about Berea College 
you know, the college founded by an abolitionist and forced to segregate under Jim Crow, but offer free tuition for all. And, you know, in fine arts, that's that's my language, fine arts education. I, I love that story. What about you? I think, uh, again, the emphasis on family and how important family is to the people of this region. They don't have much necessarily. They don't focus on physical things. And so people matter to them most, and it's those relationships. And as she kind of intimated, maybe that's why people are a little more passionate about things and, and about relationships. And so it struck me that she would actually go there and delve into that. But uh, I think what we got was an honest portrayal of, of people in a region that's greatly misunderstood. And you know, Nancy and her niece traveled to one of my bucket list destinations in Antarctica. So she is actually quite the adventurer and I, I just love sharing and, and I just love hearing about her stories. So in closing, we'd like to leave you with these words from Rachel Wolchen, writer and social media personality. If we were meant to stay in one place, we'd have roots instead of feet. (laughs) And that speaks to really Nancy's life and and hopefully ours too. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are so honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending this time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.